everyone. This is Kina Wolfenstein, and you're listening to the Complex Trauma Recovery Podcast. I am doing a series of episodes exploring experiential and bottom-up methods of treating trauma. And today, my guest is Shelby Williams. I'm super excited to talk to her. Shelby and I also follow each other on TikTok, and we share a lot of the same um, interests in terms of bottom-up therapy. But in today's episode, we're focusing more on the topic of neurodivergency. Um, Shelby and I are both therapists that are diagnosed with ADHD, and we wanted to do this episode to talk about the overlap between complex trauma and neurodivergency like autism and ADHD. So that's what this episode is about, and I feel like there's so much that can be said about neurodivergency. You know, it's been um, an area of a lot of recent growth and focus and changing understandings of how common they are, um, these different neurodivergencies and how they look, especially in women, um, people of color, adults, people that are maybe, you know, typically underdiagnosed and have been underdiagnosed with ADHD and autism. So... We wanted to talk today about specifically what that overlap is between complex PTSD and ADHD and autism. So talking about um, the ways in which being neurodivergent can you know, contribute to complex trauma and the ways that they interact with each other, being someone with both trauma and some kind of neurodivergency. And so, yeah, anyways, it, it was great to get to dive into this with her. You guys will hear the episode, but I wanted to just kind of give the topic an introduction um, before I read Shelby's bio. Shelby is a licensed social worker in the state of Michigan who specializes in complex trauma. Shelby graduated with her master's of social work degree in 2020 from Grand Valley State University and has since worked as a children's home-based therapist in community mental health and as an outpatient therapist in private practice with adults. She has experience working with children, families, perinatal mothers, and adults. Just like Kina, her favorite clients to work with are young adults who have struggled to gain deeper healing in therapy. As a trauma therapist, Shelby uses a variety of modalities and interventions, including internal family systems, parts work, polyvagal theory, compassion-focused therapy, mindfulness, somatic experiencing, and somatic experiencing to attempt deeper healing and meaning. IFS is one of her favorite modalities because she has seen so many clients resonate with it, including herself, and has also seen such powerful shifts in how clients relate to themselves, the people in their lives, and the world. IFS is, is an approach to complex trauma treatment, as well as various other treatments, that aim to integrate all parts or personalities of a person into a more functional and accepting whole system that is led by the self. The goal is to heal wounded parts and restore balance. She has found this modality especially effective for clients who tend to have dissociative symptoms and or attachment and relational trauma. Shelby is currently based in Michigan. For more information on her or how to work with her, you can find her on TikTok. And she is at Shelby underscore the therapist. Before we jump into the episode, I also wanted to share an announcement that on May 7th, I held my workshop, Intro to Experiential Therapy. It was a workshop mostly for therapists and grad students, kind of laying some foundations for experiential and bottom-up practices. Um, The whole recording of the workshop ended up being about two hours long. The presentation is like an hour and 25 minutes, and then the rest is a Q&A with people. So if you're interested, the instructions for how to check out the workshop recording are in my link tree. Hi, Shelby. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Hi. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. 
So I'm excited to chat with you about um, just kind of complex trauma and bottom-up therapy in general. And then I'm excited to touch a little bit on um, some neurodivergent stuff and, and what ADHD or autism can look like um, in trauma therapy. So why don't we start with, can you just talk a little bit about um, how you how you kind of got into working with complex trauma and what led you to the bottom up more experiential approaches? Yeah, so most of my experience is actually related to my own journey in a lot of ways. Um, I, I've always worked in trauma in some capacity and, and even we can go down the route of, of talking about why I got into social work and psychology to mm -hmm. begin with, right? But mm -hmm. I'm sure you relate to that too. Yeah. Um, but. CPTSD specifically, just getting into my own therapy with my own therapist and exploring the diagnosis. Um, a lot of the modalities that she was using on me, like, found that super relatable. And honestly, even just falling into or stumbling into your work has helped me so much. I don't even Aww. know if you know. That. Oh, wow. That's so cool. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely relate with like the the personal journey. So this is just like a, a curiosity for me, but when did you first learn about complex PTSD? Like when were you introduced to that as a diagnosis? Oh gosh, that in and of itself could be a whole conversation. Yeah. I feel like this is kind of leading down the road of we don't learn about this in grad school, right? And yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Last um, three, four years, maybe um, even hearing the word CPTSD and complex trauma and figuring out that outside of our country, it, it is a diagnosis and people can effectively get help. But it, inside of our country, you know, people don't even understand that this is an option. And mm -hmm. we come to, they come into to working with me and I'm like, Hey, have you heard of this thing? And they don't even know about it. So it's a lot of like giving psychoeducation to clients, but also like in the therapy world, a lot yeah. of therapists doubt that it is a real thing. I know, which is so frustrating to me. Yeah, I I was exposed to it first through Pete Walker's book, The Complex PTSD mm -hmm. from Surviving to Thriving. And I think that was in 20, it was either 2018 or 2019, probably, I think maybe like early 2019. And I was like, how has no one ever told me about this? And at that point I had yes. probably seen like 25 therapists. I had been in therapy since I was 13 years old. And I was like, this is so clearly my diagnosis like how has no one given it to me yeah almost similarly mine I kind of stumbled in through polyvagal theory mm. um, and eventually worked into uh you know complex trauma with with Pete Walker that way too but yeah same thing how is no one talking about this how are we not learning about this like this could even be something we learn as a high school class yeah. to, to learn how to better advocate and, and regulate our, our own bodies yeah absolutely it's super frustrating, but I do feel optimistic. Like, I feel like maybe partially through TikTok and just kind of the yeah, more sure. like platforms where people are talking about mental health. So many more people know about it now. So I'm hoping that mm -hmm. it will kind of push the mental health field to actually like accept it as a formal diagnosis. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So then, um, with the kind of bottom-up modalities, you said you experienced those as a client first, and then that made you want to learn them as a therapist as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, my own therapist, even in like, um, gosh, 
I started with her a couple years ago. Um, she immediately launched me into some IFS and, and parts work. And I remember the first time sitting there and she's like, she corrected something that I had said where um, she's like, a part of you feels that way. And I was mm. like, hold up, wait a minute. <laughs> we get to use this language and, and recognize that there are so many complexities to me and a part of me does not is not my whole entire identity, but yet I can recognize that that is still a part of me. And I get to explore that relationship with myself. Mm-hmm. That was like deeply changing to me. Yeah. Same. I, I love parts work. Um, can you speak a little bit about how, how you like to use that with clients or kind of the, I feel like parts work is cool because it's pretty expansive and there's like a lot of different ways that it can be used in therapy. So what are some Mm -hmm. of the, what are some of your favorite ways to utilize that in sessions? Yeah. Uh, that's what I love about parts work is you can really kind of shape and mold it to what you need it to be. Mm. So some people really identify with, you know, inner child language, inner child, inner teen, you know, inner young adults, inner adults. Um, and, and we can use it that way. And some people are like, you know, that's just not for me. Um, and we can morph it into what they need it to be in, in mm-hmm. some sense. So I love that part of it. Um, but first, first step for me is always just helping clients access the self and getting to know what that even means. Um, because from there, then we can start to getting to know, you know, the protectors and how they have truly positive intent. And then mm-hmm. that develops, you know, in that develops a trusting relationship with those parts, but you can't mm. do that until you you can access self and you truly understand what that means. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Can you speak a little more about accessing self? Like how, how does one do that? Or do you notice that people with complex trauma, you know, there's been like a separation from the sense of self or difficulty accessing self? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that's honestly, at least what I found in my practice, one of the core features of, of complex trauma and PPCSD is the loss of access to yourself. Mm. Clients just coming in, not ever having known who, who I am, like, and then you get to adulthood and you have these freedoms and I mean, maybe you have that safety and you're stuck wondering, um, who the heck am I? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and add in the neurodivergence piece of having to mask in so many ways, it's scary when you're like, um, there's a whole part of me that has existed this whole time and I've never had chance or opportunity to build relationship with it. Yeah. So to, to get to your question on, on how to do that, um, I, I really like to use the, the eight C's model from, you know, IFS internal family systems, helping number one, define what self really means. So the eight C's are, are compassion, curiosity, courage, clarity, creativity, connectedness, confidence, and calm. Mm. So I'll get clients really familiar with what do those words even mean and what do they mean specifically to you? Mm -hmm. Um, So I might interpret them differently, but what do they mean to you? Um, One of my favorite ones on there is is curiosity because that's going to be the driver for um, getting in touch with your protector parts. Can I at least allow myself to get curious even if I'm not feeling compassionate yet, or I'm not feeling, um, connected to this part of myself, I can at least always start with curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And those are 
so great words to to keep in mind for um I'll I'll use the language with clients of, you know, watch out for the flags of when these seeds aren't active, right? Because mm-hmm. that can be a sign that, hey, this is another part coming is part coming up if I'm not feeling calm with my decisions or I'm not feeling overly confident in something. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm I love that you brought up masking too, because I think I think it's so common with complex trauma where one thing I hear a lot is people will start learning about all the different trauma responses that they have. And they'll kind of feel like, is, am I just a compilation of trauma responses? <laughs> right. Like yeah. feeling like so many different things about like how I show up in the world and how I behave and how I act, you know, is rooted in, um, you know, some kind of trauma response or some kind of, um, you know, protective defense mechanism. And so there can be this fear of like, oh my gosh, what am I outside of these trauma responses? And I always try to reassure people that like, you do have a self, you know, even if you feel disconnected from it, it feels lost, it feels suppressed, you know, you, you do still have a self. Yeah. And, and that kind of brings in, uh, kind of the spirituality piece to being human too, right? We don't have to be religious in any sense, but getting in touch with self, some people can call it a soul, some people call it a spirit. And in IFS, we just call it a self. So, mm. um, you know, I, I, I listened and in, in tuned into your podcast with, um, a, I can't remember her name, Adele? but she talked to, yes, she mm-hmm. talked to religious trauma. And yes, that is such an amazing and, and freeing for, for people who have experience with religious trauma to figure out there's this whole part of myself that has been there this whole entire time where religious religion might have removed me from that. Mm-hmm. And I get to go in and explore that again. Yes. Yeah. I sometimes feel like it's this process of um, coming back home to like parts of yourself that have been or, or that core self, I guess, not parts, but coming back home to that self energy and that selfness that has been like suppressed or had to be in hiding or had to be, um, you know, obscured by survival responses. It's like coming back home to, to that self energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, uh, like most frequent comments that I get on some of my TikToks is, you know, the, the idea that I've never had an original thought in my mind kind of thing <laughs> where people see that and they're like, Oh, I, I guess everybody does this. And, mm-hmm. and in some like you're saying like that can be scary of my whole personality feels like my trauma responses but on the other hand it's like no that's that's so far from the truth and and this is where some of the the psychoeducation becomes really important because it's that's how our brains and and nervous system is evolutionarily wired to be Mm -hmm. so there's there's freedom in, in learning that right and and going down that intellectualizing kind of yeah path is important and helpful. And yeah. I know we're going to get into intellectualizing too and in, yes. in the downfall of that, but I think this is where it is helpful to understand and know that, hey, trauma is not the trauma responses and, and my behavior is not just who I am. No, totally. I, I love that you brought up um, kind of psychoeducation and intellectualizing because it's funny. I feel like I'm, I talk all the time about the downfalls of intellectualizing, but I also think self psychoeducation is like so vitally important for people with trauma. And I mean, I guess if I think about this podcast, this whole podcast is like a psychoeducation podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that was my goal with it is so people would feel informed and, and be able to make better sense of their experiences and then be able 
to kind of seek out, um, you know, deeper kinds of therapy. But I, I think the psychoeducation is huge because it de-shames and depathologizes so much. Um, like that was, you mentioned the polyvagal theory and that was my experience first learning about polyvagal theory. I was like, oh my God, like all of these different, you know, things that I have experienced throughout my life make sense on this like primitive biological level, you know, where my body is just trying to protect me and keep me safe and help me survive. Um, same thing when I learned about complex PTSD, same thing when I learned about um, different like attachment defenses. So I think the psychoeducation piece is huge. And I feel like you kind of have to lay the foundation with the psychoeducation. And then once someone feels like, okay, like I can understand my experiences through a compassionate lens, then you kind of go into the experiential processing, or at least that's, that's kind of how I approach it. Yeah. Some people, and especially if you are an intellectualizer, like you need that why to then be able to get to the compassion. And that's not always the case. Um, We don't always need to know why something is making us super anxious to get compassionate, but it can open the door to make it a little easier for some people. And especially if there's neurodivergence there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. um, Cool. So in terms of the, the parts work with CPTSD, could you speak a little bit just about how you see, um, how you see these different like parts showing up with complex trauma, obviously it's, you know, kind of different and unique for everyone, but just for the people listening, kind of give like an overview of this is, these are some of the parts that we might be working with when we're doing trauma therapy, complex trauma therapy. So do you want me to go from like an IFS lens, like, or even just like how you like to approach it in your own work? Because I know, I know IFS uses like the managers and the firefighters, Mm -hmm. um, but you don't have like the, yeah, I think that language is helpful, but I think, like you said, it's kind of adaptable in other ways too. So just what do you find, you know, commonly in your practice? I think the one that uh, most people really pick up on right away is inner child. And I think Kendall kind of talked to this in your last podcast too, um, that's been, at least in my experience, the one that most people latch on to right mm-hmm. away. Um, and then can from there start to understand what we even mean by parts work. So mm-hmm. then they'll start to notice the smaller, more disguised parts of themselves. So for example, a really, really common one that comes up in, in complex work is, um, inner critic. Yep. Um, the voice that's, constantly trying to tell you all the ways that you're doing something wrong um all of the ways that you should feel bad about anything really um you know forgetting someone's name in the office inner critic is going to be really harsh and attacking you for that um Mm -hmm. another one that that comes out a lot is um inner teen inner teen is probably one of my favorite to work with because they're usually the most um, angry and angsty, but -hmm. also like the most uh, creative. So when Mm -hmm. when my clients really start to get in touch with inner teen, um, they might start experimenting more with authenticity in the self. So for a lot of uh, complex trauma, like we said, that whole self-identity piece has been removed to whatever extent and clients didn't really ever get a chance to explore who they are like those really formative teenage years 
were removed in some sense mm-hmm. and, and being able to explore through self-identity and what you look like and how you present yourself to the world and the interests that you have. And so when clients get in touch with inner teen, that's when I know we're going to get start get started into deeper and deeper work. Yeah. Yeah. I love the inner child and the inner teen work too. Um, and then I think the other, the other parts that I end up working a lot with in therapy are just kind of different protector parts. And I think it, it goes really well with kind of the compassionate, um, the compassionate non-pathologizing lens that we're talking about here, because all of these different things that maybe someone has felt shame about in terms of like, why do I get angry so quickly? Or why am I so obsessive or anxious or, you know, just these different patterns that maybe they hold judgment about, or they hold, they hold self-criticism towards, towards, uh, got jumbled up there. They hold criticism towards themselves for, you know, having those patterns. Um, we can suddenly frame those as like protector parts and start looking mm-hmm. at the ways that those, those different parts are working to protect them. So I feel like that's been my, my focus in parts work is we kind of go back and forth between doing more of the like inner child, inner teen stuff, and then working with patterns as protectors. Yeah. And something that I like with attaching the, the child teen, you know, the age framework to it is it can make it easier for people who have a hard time going into their body in a sense, because if you have that age label attached to it, then we get to ask the question, well, how old does this part feel? Mm -hmm. And almost immediately, right? If, if the client can recognize this as inner child part, for example, and we say, okay, well, how old do you feel when, when this part is taking over? And they can immediately say, this feels really young. Great. Now we get to move somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. Because how can you not have compassion for a young child, right? Mm -hmm. And then that this part of yourself feels very, very young. So why yeah. or how could we do it any other way? We couldn't authentically. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. I think that the inner child and inner teen work is such a good portal for building self-compassion because especially as adults, like, you know, I, there's kind of this weird thing that happens with complex trauma where because like I'm me, right? And I'm living in my own body and my own mind. Maybe when I think back to things that happened in my childhood, I'm not really thinking about like, oh, that was an eight-year-old that went through that, right? Or that was like a 13-year-old. I'm just thinking, oh, that was me. Like that was my my life experience. And so people can hold, you know, all of this kind of shame and self-judgment towards these these younger parts of themselves or or, you know, even towards like things that have happened in the past. And then there's kind of this perspective change that can be really helpful where it's like, okay, stepping into my adult mind today, stepping into my like adult perspective, how would I actually feel seeing, you know, a nine-year-old go through this or seeing an 11-year-old go through this, right? Or even, you know, if I saw um, someone that age acting out, right, would I be blaming them and shaming them Mm -hmm. or would I be having that compassion? So I feel like it really helps with kind of connecting with the adult energy when you start working with those younger parts and kind of unblending from them. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think too, like IFS and and parts work is so helpful for clients who are parents because it, Mm. it gives them the, the compassion that they need for themselves when they're triggered to then be able to give compassion to their child in front of them who's triggered and needs help. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I've definitely worked with a lot of people that are um, parents, often parents of young kids while going through their own um, childhood attachment trauma journeys. And I know that it can be so intense, right, to be um, trying to break those cycles and trying to provide like healthy and secure attachments for your, your own children while you're processing your own childhood trauma. So I can see, definitely see why that would be so important. It's so hard. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Okay. So let's kind of bring in the neurodivergence piece a little bit. And I'm, I'm super excited to talk about this with you. Um, I just, I feel like it has just come up more and more and more in my practice, the longer that I've been doing this. And especially since I started marketing more towards working with intellectualizers, I think there's like a huge overlap between intellectualizing and and neurodivergence, whether it's like autism or ADHD or both. So yeah, let's, let's jump into that. Can you just speak a little bit about your perspective, um, what you've noticed here? Yeah. So just like I was saying earlier with how I kind of pivoted into niching down into complex trauma, same thing with neurodivergence. It's Mm -hmm. kind of an experiential process for me. Having been late diagnosed ADHD, I'm kind of self-exploring with some uh, self-diagnosis with autism and and things and what that looks like. But just like you've talked about before, like seeing it in practice when, um, you know, most of my clients are CPTSD, but then from there, most of my CPTSD clients also have some uh, form of neurodivergence and what that looks like. Uh, But for, for intellectualizing, like I have, again, I don't have the the science and data and training and stuff to back this up, but just in what I've seen and and what that's looked like, I have a couple theories with intellectualizing. Mm. So first and foremost, like we have to point out that, living as a neurodivergent person and in a sense i'm talking uh, adhd and and autism Mm -hmm. is traumatic in and of itself like Mm -hmm. there's there's no way to move around that living in a neurotypical world when you are not neurotypical is traumatic you're living in a world that is built against you yep so it's almost the question of what comes first cptsd or neurodivergence and Mm -hmm. this is why it's so hard for us to pull apart you know what goes where and why so many cptsd clients are coming in questioning is it this is it this is it this and and that's why we don't know which is coming first there's still a lot of science that has to be done around that the second piece i think is the sensory issues that are tied to to both adhd and autism Mm -hmm. So if you're living with with sensory issues in any capacity, whether that's, you know, constantly overstimulated or constantly understimulated, um, that is it's so extremely uncomfortable in the body. And when you're doing that 24 seven, mm. um, that's that has to lead to dissociation. You have to pick up dissociation to uh, tune that out to some extent. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's really going to lead to going more into inner world and having a rich inner world and, and inner experience because you're coming out of the body um, to mm-hmm. avoid those sensory sensory issues right mm-hmm. and then you know we can talk too about the the correlation of having ADHD or autism and having the experience of hyperfixations right so for some people uh and and by some people I mean myself 
Um, <laughs> intellectualizing can become the hyperfixation. Oh my God, so, yes. Um, going into the field of psychology, going into <laughs> social work, and then coming out of that and learning all about trauma and the body and all of that stuff. That, when I think about it, really was a hyperfixation for me. Oh my God, um, you're so right. Yeah, same. <laughs> that yeah, that turns into the, the intellectualizing and, and strengthens it. And so this is where we really need to pivot into that, those bottom-up experiential modalities to kind of jolt us out of that for a second mm-hmm. um, and get us back into our body because we've been living in our head for so long. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. I think this podcast is, you guys are just witnessing the result of my hyperfixations. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, I that's kind of what happened when I found out about complex PTSD. And it was a combination of like that ADHD hyperfixation, but also um, the intellectualizing as a trauma response. Right. And so it, it really does blend together. So I, I know exactly what you mean about how it can be hard to tease them apart. Cause it was like partially, Oh, wow. These are my experiences. And I don't really know how to feel my way through them or process, you know, the emotion around it. So I'm just going to try to like understand every single angle of it and think my way through it. But then also it was that kind of just genuinely enjoying, like taking in all of the information and, you know, learning as much as possible. So mm-hmm. I definitely see that a lot. Um, let's talk more about what makes it traumatic to be neurodivergent. Like what are what are the ways that living in a neurotypical world as a neurodivergent person kind of contributes to complex trauma? Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is definitely just like the social rejection piece. I was reading mm-hmm. something the other day that said that I think kids with uh, ADHD receive seven times more negative feedback than their peers. Mm-hmm. I don't have that pulled up, but I'm pretty sure it was, it was something around there just like constantly being corrected and told that you're doing things wrong and just receiving yeah. negative feedback about yourself. Well, and even that in itself, like goes back to how, um, you know, going into the field of psychology can, can become the hyperfixation If your whole entire life, you're being told something is wrong with you there's mm-hmm. something that you need to fix about yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And psychology is a very easy avenue to go and explore that for yourself. And it's like, one day I'll have these magical answers and I'll be able to change everything and fit in, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and again, that's where kind of going back to parts work stuff too becomes so almost necessary to, to learn that compassion for these parts of yourself that aren't ever going to go away. Mm-hmm. That's, that's who you are. And we get to embrace that. But in terms of like the, the trauma piece attached to that, when, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to the sensory issues here. If you're a, a kid and actually let me rewind, kids instinctively know how to regulate their sensory things. So yeah. the kids who are, you know, bouncing off the walls or the kids who are trying to self-soothed by lots of different things like Mm -hmm. echolalia, flapping your hands around, um, using your voice, jumping around, screaming, Mm -hmm. um, rocking, pushing against things, deep pressure, all that kind of sensory seeking, regulating stuff. Yeah. Like kids instinctively know how to do that stuff in, in their bodies. And we see it from the time that they're two, three years old on. But once they hit and sometimes certain daycares were taking all of those away from from Mm -hmm. them 
Mm-hmm. So the ways that they knew how to work through their sensory difficulties were saying, nope, you can't have those anymore. You, you can't be flapping your hands. It's distracting. Um, you can't be yelling things out. That's distracting, which I get it. You're, you're in a classroom setting with lots of kids and everyone has their own needs, but it's also traumatizing because yeah. what are we replacing it with? Right. Right. And they're being then kind of taught to suppress those, those natural self-regulating instincts. And so then they're just going to be stuck in a state of dysregulation. Yeah. And so then the only thing left or the only thing that you are left with is dissociation, right? Mm-hmm. I can't regulate my body in the way that my body wants to regulate itself. So it's either stay here with these extremely painful and uncomfortable feelings or mm-hmm. learn how to shut that off. Yeah. Yeah. It makes so much sense. Yeah. So then that's kind of where like the masking conditioning comes in, right? Like I think kids learn to mask pretty early on. Um, What do you see with masking, masking and trauma? (laughs) Uh, They go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and even with how trauma responses and trauma behavior comes out and how people try to mask what that looks like. And there's so many layers to it. I don't even know where to start, but yeah, masking and the the social piece and then the not having any connection to who I actually am, mm-hmm. I think is part of, you know, how we get into the trauma parts with that. So I mm-hmm. have if if my whole core belief about myself is that no one likes me for who I am, I have to mask that. Oh, that's a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely the shame connection. I see so much. And, you know, one thing I've noticed, cause I, I also tend to work with mostly adults at this point, I worked with kids earlier in my career And I definitely have noticed um, the way that masking then also perpetuates other mental health problems. Um, So, you know, when you're masking all the time, it's exhausting, it's draining, it's, you know, it's a lot of um, stress on your nervous system. And so then I think there's like higher anxiety, you know, higher, um, even like depression and burnout is a big thing, right? Where um, the masking becomes so exhausting that there's a more intense kind of collapse into like a, a shutdown state or a burnout state. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like it's this, it's this really difficult thing because, you know, the masking is kind of, I guess in and of itself an attachment defense, because it's like, okay, I need to mask these parts of myself in order to maintain, you know, attachment and social belonging. But then the masking itself takes such a toll on, on your brain and your body. Well, and there's a, there it is again, like where, which comes first, the, the trauma or the neurodivergence. If I'm having to mask this, all of myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, with, with ADHD, like my experience, um, I've been, I've been reflecting on this a lot recently and my experience was definitely like a lot, a lot of shaming because I also was not diagnosed as a kid. Um, and so I think, I mean, I, all, all neurodivergent people, whether diagnosed or undiagnosed are going to deal with, with some Mm -hmm. tough shit. Um, but my particular experience was also that all of my behavior was just labeled as me being like obstinate and bad and rude and badly behaved. Right. Because Mm -hmm. no one was advocating for like, Hey, 
hey, this kid has ADHD and she has like different needs than other people and her brain maybe works differently than other kids. Um, And so instead, all of my ADHD behaviors, all of my neurodivergent behaviors were viewed through this very like um, kind of shaming behaviorist lens. And so, um, yeah, I had like so much struggle with authority figures, uh, like teachers and just adults in my life, um, who, who really thought that I was being like maliciously <laughs> misbehaved all the yeah. time. And then also with peers. So just the, re- the relational piece has probably been the hardest piece of it. Yeah, that 100% is attachment trauma. If I'm, I'm being told my whole life that you're being malicious and that you should be able to just do these things. Why can't you just do them? Right. That, mm. oh, that's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, what does it look like to, this is like a big question, but what does it look like to work with trauma or work or just work with people through a neurodiversity affirming lens? Like what, what does like a neurodiversity affirming therapist kind of bring into therapy that, that maybe other therapists don't um I'm trying to think where I want to start with this I think first and foremost it's important to recognize the validity of self-diagnosis um so and and there's complexities within that and there's you know a lot of discourse within the field on how to go about this but if someone is is coming as a client to you and saying, hey, I've been struggling with these whole things my whole life, and this really feels true to me, I want to spend as much time as I possibly can exploring that um, and, and validating their experiences and making sure we're paying attention to that. Um, so... Mm-hmm. I think with that comes in recognizing all of the uh, sensory needs that that go with neurodivergence. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we're talking about using experiential therapy, meaning we're we're using the body, we're trying to get these people back into their bodies to experience and and reprocess eventually, we have to address the the sensory limitations that are there first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, address the sensory limitations. In can you speak a little more on what that might look like? So, this I think this is where a lot of um, my my psychoeducation gets poured to at least in the beginning of my work mm-hmm. with clients is figuring out what are the the ways that your body wants to be comforted when you have uncomfortable situations and then going from there. So if you have someone who's uh, really disconnected from their body and learned to shut off really uncomfortable sensations, whether it's trauma or neurodivergence, and, and that's where I think this conversation can go too, is the treatment looks the same in a lot of ways, mm. um, is taking as many baby steps as we need to, to work towards not even necessarily comfort, but at least tolerance and neutrality mm-hmm. um, to, to some of the, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, like experiential processes. So yeah. what that might look like is, for example, a lot of people come in um, actually 
absolutely hating deep breathing and, and de deep breath work and, and meditation and stuff, which is fair and valid <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, so taking in sensory accommodations to that is how can we, if, if deep breathing is causing so much anxiety in your body to start with, let's first work around that and get you comfortable in the ways that we need to. I don't know mm -hmm. if I'm answering that. No, I think I'm with you. Like it's, it's kind of, it sounds like it's basically helping someone really attuned to like what their body needs to be regulated without kind of those like neurotypical standards of what is acceptable or not. And so like, it, yeah. I mean, it seems like it's, it's very that much part. rooted in like the somatic stuff already that we're doing in trauma, right. Which is helping people like mm -hmm. get in tune with their bodies and what their bodies need. But then with neurodivergent people, it's like this extra layer of needing to de-shame like, Hey, if you need to be like rocking in your chair the whole time we're doing therapy, like do that, you know, tap your yes, legs, bring yeah. your fidget, you know, whatever, like the do people what your who body come wants in to and do. throw their shoes off and they've got their blankets with them and yeah. they've got their comfort foods. Yeah. To do all of that. Yeah. And this is where like, again, going back to like protector work or inner teen work where we can access those powers for for good right getting those parts into roles that are benefiting us so mm -hmm. using the inner teenagers angst and and feistiness to better advocate for yourself when mm -hmm. you notice you have the sensory issues and those protector parts who want to keep you know the self and the body protected helping them learn that this is a way we can do that. We've always mm -hmm. been told that, you know, it was unsafe to do it this way. We're stepping into the idea of actually, this is what is safe and best for us right now. Yes. Assuming we have the safety first. Yeah, totally. No, I love that. And I love the kind of up, the updating of the IFS roles um, to help, you know, advocate for us too. I think another piece of being neurodiversity affirming that comes up for me is not trying to like, um, not working from a framework where you're trying to help someone function more like a neurotypical person and instead helping them learn how to best function in the way that actually is like appropriate and accommodating for, for their brain mm -hmm. and their needs. And so like, you know, a lot of the times, some of the conversations that I end up having with clients is basically saying like, it's okay to have things that you can't do like other people or that you don't want to do because it's too distressing or dysregulating for you. Um, you don't necessarily have to be like, oh, I need to kind of get my ADHD brain to, to let me do this thing. And of course there are things that we do have to do. You know, we have to like pay taxes and fill out forms and do all kinds of things <laughs> that we don't want to have to do already. But then I, I think there's this like added shame layer that happens where, and, and maybe in more like behaviorist, less neurodiversity affirming therapeutic settings, it is more kind of like, okay, these are like the hacks and the, the tricks and the tools that you're going to use to try to like emulate neurotypical behavior, basically, yeah. instead of like, yeah, what actually makes sense for you? And what, what is like the lifestyle that actually feels good and accommodating for you? Yeah. And I think this is where the, the bottom up approach is really becomes necessary with, with neurodivergence and, and complex trauma. But what's actually happening is that, you know, most people go to their doctor and say, Hey, I'm struggling with these things. Doctors immediately going to prescribe or recommend CBT therapy, right? Mm -hmm. Cognitive therapy. And, and I know you've talked a lot about this in, in your work in, you know, that's what gets the most funding and, 
a lot of medical providers don't have a whole lot of mental health education. And so mm-hmm. it makes sense that that's what they're prescribing, you know, thinking it's what's best. And then you have this person who's intellectualizing and going in their head. And again, their whole life has been try to figure out the rules to make myself feel or seem more neurotypical. And you're putting them in a very thought-based therapy modality that it it is set up in, oddly enough, kind of some black and white thinking where Mm -hmm. if you do it all 100% this way, Mm -hmm. you should be good, right? And then you have those clients who do do that and they're not good at the end. Right. And so that leaves them like very confused. Again, your core belief is what is wrong with me? Why right. can't I do this? Yep. Yep. Totally. And then like the way that the complex trauma and the kind of neurodivergency experiences overlap, um, it can be a combination of, you know, basically shame around, well, why can't I regulate myself in a way that other people can regulate. Why can't I Mm -hmm. act in a way that people with no trauma act basically, you know, that people who aren't living with chronically dysregulated nervous systems and chronic shame and all of these complex trauma issues. And then the neurodiversity layer of, you know, why can't I get myself to, I mean, I won't even start listing different things because it's so much variation based on person. But like, for me, I would often feel embarrassment over really small things that just seemed easy for other people, but just my brain like does not do it, (laughs) like will not do it. Um, One example for me is that I have really, really, really poor spatial awareness um, and like direction sense. And so I, I struggle to read maps. If I ever have to like build something, like build a piece of furniture, like I'm going to end up crying, like, you know, things like this. (laughs) Um, And so I would have those experiences and I would be like, am I stupid? Am I just, you know, am I just not trying hard enough? Like people are saying, why do I get so frustrated and dysregulated trying to do these things that seem easy for other people? All of that. Yeah. I relate to so much of that. Yeah. So um, neurodiversity affirming therapy and trauma therapy, complex trauma therapy go very well together. That's kind of what I'm getting from this. Like, it seems like almost the, the necessary ingredients are very similar, right? Like the way that we're going to kind of de-shame and be neurodiversity affirming, um, has a lot of organic overlap with the ways that we're going to be trauma informed and kind of work from the bottom up. Yeah. And I think something that you've kind of uh, talked about before too, is how with experiential bottom up therapies, they're also different, but they all have a lot of the same core pieces but I think it's those those differences that that clients really get to embrace that there's not one way to healing I get to figure out what works best for me whereas some of the more top-down approaches are very prescriptive like you have to follow Mm -hmm. it in these ways and in, in these exact steps and and if you're not then you know we're exploring why why you didn't do your homework last week right an experiential is is all about the the de-shaming of it first and foremost like you said but also this idea that I get to figure out what is healing for me not because someone else tells me it's healing but because I'm learning to listen to my body and my body tells me that this is healing yes yeah yeah kind of honoring like with those experiential and bottom-up frameworks still really honoring each individual's unique 
sense of their body and their inner emotional world and kind of recognizing that different things, different experiences are going to be healing for different people or that different things are going to be not helpful for different people. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, um, oh my gosh, it reminds me of like when I was going to therapy, uh, when I was in undergrad as like a 19, 20 year old. And I saw this series of therapists that were all so set on me doing like meditation stuff, um, like a lot of like stillness and meditation. Um, and I, it didn't work for me because of both the complex trauma and the ADHD where like for my ADHD, I'm like, I do not want to sit still with my eyes closed for 20 minutes. Like I'm bored, <laughs> you know, like I'm so <laughs> bored. This is just like not helpful for me. But then also with the complex trauma, being kind of in a perpetual flight state, slowing down actually felt threatening. Like it didn't feel comfortable for me. And I wasn't in a place where I was ready to do that yet. And I had a number of therapists that would just be really honestly kind of pushy about these interventions instead of like, oh, okay. So that doesn't work for your body. Like, let's figure out what does work for your body. Oh my gosh. Yes. A a lot of like this kind of new age health stuff is, is pushing mindfulness and stillness and not everyone needs or wants that. And and not everyone does best with that. And it's okay to recognize that and then just work to figure out, okay, what is the thing that your body wants to do? What is the thing your body needs to feel safe? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, hmm. What else? What else comes up around neurodiversity and, and therapy? I don't have any specific questions, but I would love to hear anything else that you, that you found or that, um, that feels important to you and your work. Oh gosh. Um, I don't know. Just a big open-ended question for you. (laughs) I know my ADHD brain is blinking. Yeah, that's totally okay. Um, what about, Oh, you know, here's, here's another question. What about masking, um, socially like masking in terms of kind of that authenticity piece and the process of unmasking in terms of getting more in touch with your like authentic personality and the way that you show up socially? Is that something that you have experienced yourself or, or found in your practice? Um, yes to both of those. That is something I'm still working on. And in my own, you know, therapy journey too, is, is what that looks like and navigating friendships and relationships almost as if you're a new person, right? And, and the people in front of you are having to learn about this new person in front of them mm-hmm. in, in a sense, because those parts of you have been hidden to some extent. Mm-hmm. And you're having to not only help yourself learn and understand what's going with on with you, but you're having to educate the people around you um, and helping them understand what's happening Like when you're having a meltdown, for example. Um, this is not about you. I'm just having a, a sensory meltdown right now and helping your partner understand what are the things that you need. Um, so, you know, working with neurodivergence and working with relational and attachment stuff goes hand in hand Mm -hmm. because you first have to understand those things for yourself to then be able to to look at the people around you and say hey can you help me in this way um and and helping to to de-shame it even with the people around you too because they've also been conditioned whether they're neurodivergent or not that um 
you know, they, they saw the kids around them. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, being constantly corrected and, and things. And a lot of times too, what happens is once we start the unmasking journey for ourselves and the people around us see that happening and, and say, oh, this person did it and they're still safe um, and I still care for them and I still love them, then it's like a domino effect. The people yeah. around you also start to unmask and feel safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like even with, when I think of kind of the personality features or like the social features, like sometimes the way that neurodiverse people like to interact socially, um, you know, or enjoy connection is to like share those hyperfixations or those special interests, um, in terms of like, okay, here's this thing that I've been reading about or learning about. And I would love to just like monologue about it for a while and just kind of like, you know, info dump, like everything that I've learned about, about this thing. And so that will be like super held back where it's like, oh, you know, no one wants to hear about my, you know, my obsession with the deep sea creatures. Uh, that's a personal example, but you know, like there will be kind of that, that level of shame. And so sometimes with clients, I'll even, you know, ask them like, yeah, is there anyone else in your life that either is also neurodivergent where they can like relate to you more and kind of, you guys can almost unmask with each other and like normalize your experiences together, Mm -hmm. or just someone who loves you and is open-minded and supportive enough that they can kind of hold space for you to practice unmasking and to practice like showing up in a more authentic way and, you know, ask them if, if they, will listen to you talk about, you know, whatever your interest is, um, or, you know, kind of relate to you in those ways that maybe you, you have felt no one would want to relate to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Devin Price's work. Um, they wrote on masking autism and and some other things, but in, in that book specifically, a, a big theme is for people with neurodivergence to go out and find their communities again. Mm-hmm. And to actively give themselves space to have those hyperfixations, but with people who also have the same hyperfixations. So mm-hmm. um, that is so in- incredibly healing to know that there are people out in the world who are living my dream, right? My dream is to just be fully immersed in these fixations I have, and there mm-hmm. are people doing it, and I get to go do it with them. And um, have that safety in, in relationship with them. That's so important. Yeah. I love that. I, I love Devin Price's work for anyone listening to definitely recommend that book unmasking autism. Um, yeah, I feel like a lot of it just has so much to do with, with authenticity, you know? Um, and, and that's where I see the complex trauma overlap so much because a lot of the times, like when, when I think about a neurodivergent child, who is experiencing complex trauma, complex attachment trauma in their home, right? So like in their home, they're experiencing neglect or abuse or, you know, misattunement or um, parentification or one of these various attachment traumas. But then they go out into the world and they're experiencing attachment trauma everywhere else too, because Mm -hmm. of the neurodivergency being kind of shamed and pathologized and misunderstood. And so it, it, becomes very compounding, right? Where it's like, oh my gosh, like I'm, you know, at home, I feel alone and and misattuned. Mm -hmm. And then I go to school and I feel misattuned from my peers and I feel misunderstood by my teachers. And so I find that the core of, of that work with people that have experienced both, you know, kind of the trauma of living in a neurotypical world and complex trauma, 
um, it's that authenticity piece. It's like having to relearn that there are people you can be authentic with and, and also be attached to, and that you are worthy and deserving of attachment as your authentic self. Mm, Yes. I think you summed it up perfectly. Mm. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat with me about this. Um, I'm, I'm out of my kind of pre-planned questions. (laughs) We still have a little Mm -hmm. bit of time if there's anything else that you want to chat about, but I think we covered a lot. Yeah, no, thanks so much for having me. I think these conversations are really important to do the work and to destigmatize and get to the authenticity that we're all looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that there's more therapists now where like we can be open about our own experiences with with neurodiversity. Mm -hmm. Like there's a whole community, a growing community of therapists that are like open about our own experiences, you know, being autistic or having ADHD um, and being being neurodivergent therapists, working with neurodivergent communities. And I think that's great too, because it takes it it shifts that kind of medicalized power dynamic where instead of (laughs) all neurotypical clinicians kind of like treating neurodivergent people from a neurotypical perspective. It's like, yeah, you can find a therapist that that actually gets you and that has the, you know, similar lived experience yeah. to you. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, the goal is to take that to, to everywhere, right? I can seek out a, an ADHD doctor. I can seek out, you know, ADHD specific teachers and, and mm-hmm. coworkers and, and so on. And, yes. and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the dream for sure. After feeling alienated for so long, just finding people that get you can be mm-hmm. so reparative. Yeah. And and when when therapy is all about the relationship and, and learning how to, to relearn how to be in relationships with people and how to relearn attachment, having your uh, one of your primary attachment people that you're working with, your therapist, show up as their authentic self is almost a requirement in my opinion Mm -hmm. I totally agree yeah Shelby what um what state do you practice in I am in Michigan I'm in West Michigan um Muskegon awesome and are you accepting clients I have room for a few more, yes. Um, you can find my links in my TikTok that will take you to my Psychology Today page. I've got some other links in there for finding therapists if anyone is interested and needs that. Um, and I've got some information in there on CPTSD too. Awesome. Yeah, I'll include all of those links in the podcast description. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Shelby. I really appreciated your your insight today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me again. Very excited.